Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, get back to the time. Uh, thank you. Right. Dr- drugs are bad. Okay. Okay. Don't don't do drugs, Eric. You know the. Oh, I can't say it on this show because reasonable people listen to it. You know his song. <laughs> like you don't want to grow up addicted to crack, being homeless on the street, and I'm yes. not going to say the rest. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm familiar with all of Mr. Mackey's wonderful doings. There we go. And welcome to another episode of Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you, part of the Agora Podcast Network. Indeed. And today, we're going to do yet another request from a patron, Russell Walden. We actually already covered some of his questions on a prior show. We just really liked his questions. He asked lots of good questions, and we haven't gotten any other requests. So we're going to just hit all of them, and it's a good one. So today, at least not since then. We've gotten not, other requests. Yes, not in the last month and a half or so. So this one's going to be about... The war on drugs and the drug war. Indeed. And we actually want to start by differentiating the two. So the question was, how has the war on drugs affected geopolitics? So possibly Russell is also a subscriber of Geopolitical Futures, where Xander daylights, well, you know, moonlighting, (laughs) daylighting. Indeed. Where Xander daylights. But so he was like, ooh, geopolitics is cool. And it is. But one of the things we want to differentiate is what is when people talk about the war on drugs versus the drug war, what are they talking about? Because they have different impacts and they're to some extent driven by slightly different things. So domestically in the United States, the war on drugs has been an effort to stop growing drug use uh, and, and also like domestic uh, violent criminal activity related to you know the demand and black market economy for drugs by using more aggressive jail time crackdowns and like propaganda campaigns in schools think dare think mr Mackey. i remember i think a lot of folks who are maybe even like one generation younger than us like early 20s dare wasn't a thing right but if you grew up in the early 90s everyone had a policeman or Someone come in and do a dare talk yeah. in your like second grade class. Right. And they say drugs are bad. Okay. okay. And, <laughs> you know, and it's the the war on drugs has been questionably effective. Who it's targeted as a matter of controversy. We'll we'll talk about a little bit later. But the, the big idea of the war on drugs is it criminalized the possession of small amounts of drugs or illegal substances in an effort to get people to just stop. Please stop doing drugs. Right. So. Sort of the the impetus to this episode was the question whether or not 
the war on drugs had impacts on global geopolitics. And I'm not entirely sure if the war on drugs had geopolitical consequences, but it, it does seem like the drug war, which is the war waged by the United States in concert with some of its allies, as well as just domestically within Mexico, for example, right. did impact and continues to impact geopolitics. So war on drugs, largely going after demand. Drug war, largely going after supply. So in, in the U.S., domestically, the war on drugs, so the, the campaign that went after de- uh, demand, went, uh, led to a, a fairly substantial increase in the percentage of Americans incarcerated, for, especially for small possession, like personal use amounts. Although what's interesting is I remember John Boehner who I think everyone will be surprised to hear this, John Boehner, basically as soon as he left Congress, which is like part of my pet theory that as soon as you're out of the game, you're allowed to be reasonable again. Uh, John Boehner came out and said like, you know, the vast majority of Americans in jail are in jail for nonviolent crimes. And it turns out uh, Snopes says he's wrong. Really? Yeah. I need to do a little bit more research on that, but apparently it, it is mostly violent crime related at this point. I don't know if that's always been true. You know, we can, we, if we think about, the impact of the war on drugs, like one theory is that it created a sort of downward spiral mm. of, you know, of a permanent underclass. I mean, one thing that's certainly true is like once you're convicted of a federal felony, you can't vote anymore. Right. It's really hard to get a job again. A substantial like one out of three black men in the United States end up in jail at some point, which is a yeah, just think about it. Like you probably know three black men. And, you know, obviously this is a this is very weighted. So there are certain parts of the country where way more than one third of black men end up jail and parts of the country where way fewer do. But one of the criticisms of the war on drugs is it created this permanent underclass where they don't have options to participate in society in normal ways and therefore may have, you know, may have participated in the increase in violence that the United States saw between the 1970s and the 1990s that violence has since turned a corner since the mid-1990s and, and decreased and kind of flattened out at a much lower rate. But yeah, point is, like it's now often called like prohibition among those who want to decriminalize a lot of drug possession because prohibition was also correlated with and probably pretty clearly caused the rise of a lot of like mob activity and violence there. Yeah. And I mean, one point of comparison with the war on drugs and the increase in violent crime can be made with prohibition in the 1920s and and early 30s. Alcohol was legal and then it wasn't. There was an amendment to the Constitution and then I guess there's another amendment that canceled it. But basically, homicides went up almost immediately following the onset of prohibition in 1920. And after prohibition ended in 1933, they fell immediately again. So the rate in 1920 at sort of the onset of prohibition was about seven homicides per 100,000 people. Um, By the time we got to the end of prohibition in 1933, it was 10 per 100,000. And then less than a decade after in 1941, so the beginning of World War II, it was six per 100,000. So not quite doubled and then almost fell by 50%. Yeah. And and for to give you a sense of context right now, the homicide rate in the United States is hovering around five per 100,000, so lower than all those numbers. And in the in Western Europe is about two and a half. So half of that. One thing to keep in mind about the war on drugs in the United States is that 
I think it's popular for those who want to repeal it to see a correlation in increase in crime and say the war on drugs caused an increase in crime. And and like it's a bit, you know, mon- like monoistically caused, you know, it was the one thing that caused an increase in crime. And it is worth noting that five years before the war on drugs was declared, there was a sharp increase in violent crime and it continued to go up in sort of a straight line when the war on drugs was declared. So if I if I like just showed you a, a graph of U.S. violent crime or like murder rate, essentially, and said, show me where the war on drugs started, you would not be able to look at that graph and say, ah, it started here because it just it's it shows up in the middle of this upward trend. So to some extent, certainly the argument at the time was that, hey, we're seeing this substantial spike in crime, violent crime related to the drug trade. We need to have a war on drugs because people are dying. So it's not as, you know, as usual, it's not it's not totally straightforward. One, what caused what and two, what the impact of the war on drugs has been. Right. It is a it is a theory that violent crime in the United States is driven by this downward spiral of a permanent underclass. However, that increase in you know that increase in violent crime started well before the war on drugs began. Causation is hard, right? It is. It's very difficult to simply look at a trend line of two metrics and do anything besides correlation, right? Right. It's hard to figure out what causes what in the world of, well, where double blind studies aren't, you know, possible to us. Yeah. Yeah. But what's happening right now in the United States is very interesting is that there's obviously political, growing political opposition to continuing the war on drugs including increased popularity of not just making marijuana medically available and then also decriminalizing it, but then also legalizing it as a recreational drug, just like alcohol, you know, with regulation and taxes associated with it. And states are, you know, God bless the the experimental cauldrons of democracy that are the 50 <laughs> U.S. states because you don't have to get a full consensus yeah. to try something out, right? Colorado and Washington said, we like money, right? Like, let's give this a crack. And I see what you did there. Yeah. And yeah, thank you. Actually, what was really funny was the year that Washington State and Colorado legalized marijuana, also the year that the Seattle Seahawks and the Denver Broncos went to the Super Bowl. So it was known as the Super Bowl. <laughs> oh, oh God. with air quotes. Yeah. Um, think of like uh Dr. Evil doing that. And and Violent crime has not increased in relation to that. DUIs have not increased in relation to that, which is which is great. And I still think nobody has died of a marijuana overdose like most things. Like Tylenol. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yes, exactly. Exactly. Like still still less likely to overdose on it than Tylenol. Yeah. 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 So one of the arguments for decriminalization or full legalization is the idea that we already mentioned prohibition gave rise to a lot more violent crime, but also organized crime groups. So the sort of the contemporary notion of the mob, the mafia, a lot of a lot of those organized crime groups got their start as bootleggers. They would sell alcohol illegally on the black market. And since there were windfall prices to be derived from the sale of black market goods, they had a lot of cash going for them. And that made them more powerful today. With drugs, you see the rise of cartels. And this, you know, was the case in the 70s and 80s and through to today where those cartels were based has changed a little bit as the source of supply has changed somewhat. There's still a lot of uh, cocaine grown in Colombia, but some of it has moved to to Mexico, whereas 
for a while, Mexico was more known for being like the transport corridors for a lot of the drugs were brought to the U.S. But point is, black markets bring windfall prices to organizations that are willing to undertake the risk to sell those black market goods. So one interesting tidbit is that today in markets where you have legal or decriminalized marijuana, whether it's at a state level or a national level, a lot, a lot of the times as, as marijuana has become legal, you have seen taxes rise heavily on marijuana across the whole supply chain from growers to wholesalers to retailers. And then of course, on the final retail sales tax to consumers. And actually in some cases you're seeing legal marijuana prices at that are higher than black market marijuana prices. So there's this company called Tilray, which is a Canadian company. It's a Canadian marijuana company. I think they're involved at a lot of different levels of the marijuana business, not just growing, but also like, I think they own some brands and stuff like that. But anyways, Canada just legalized marijuana nationally this year. And Tilray, I think went public last year, recently. They IPO'd. And initially they just took off. They, they were crushing it last year. And then this year, as marijuana became legal nationally in Canada, their stock price has actually been suffering. And part of the reason is because as marijuana became nationally legal in Canada, a lot of new taxes were introduced that drove legal marijuana prices up in in some places above black market prices. So it's actually still cheaper to get marijuana some places in Canada on the black market. And that kind of defeats some of the policy purposes of making it legal in the first place, which is to encourage the purchase of marijuana through legal channels in order to decrease the amount of cash available to illegal organizations. I mean, essentially gut the the black market supply chain. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, certainly in California, let's see, it became, marijuana became recreationally legal in 2018. And something like taxes are now something like 30%. So if you want to go buy marijuana in a dispensary, the sales tax that you're going to pay is about 30% of the price. So a lot of dispensaries have actually been struggling with these new regulations. And as more money floods into this business, you're beginning to see more powerful lobbying entities come together that are going to be able to push back. It's it's just very much a pendulum swings one way or another, right? right? California and some of these other state governments that have wanted to drive up tax revenues from the sale of, of legal marijuana are now maybe shooting themselves in the foot a little bit and are going to have to adjust their policies. Yeah, I, I realize you probably should have given like a trigger warning to our libertarian listeners because it's it's one of those things that from the like libertarian or free market mindset, it's just like such a head slap that, OK, we've we can let, you know, ob- obviously a, a legalized market can operate much more cheaply on its own than a black market because the black market has to add all these additional costs for hiding their behavior and having lots of security and and, you know, people get shot. Right. And that's that's tough yeah. on recruiting. It is. I mean, it think is. about no, like right. put out the job description, like 20 percent chance of being shot, 50 percent chance of going to jail. I wouldn't take that job. But one of the challenges in particular with trying to extract a lot of taxes right away is that the the supply chain for the black market still exists. Like on day one, when you introduce yeah. recreational marijuana, that supply chain still exists. So if it's competitive, it's not going to wither. Whereas, you know, in the future, like, let's say you started with a pretty low tax rate and then gradually ramped it up. You could you could wither the the black market supply chain much faster or or at all. And then once it's gone, the startup costs to introducing that supply chain are high enough that 
even if you have high taxes on marijuana, the the incentive is much lower to build it up from nothing as opposed to just keep it going once it's already there. Because like if you've been a marijuana purchaser, you know, in the in the black market days, like, you know, your guy. Right. And like, you know, he's this he's this like really chill dude with dreadlocks <laughs> and, you know, he's like really nice. And you've got a code word all set up and he's got his contacts and like they're all already there. So if you're sitting or do I want to go down the street and pay more for, you know, I have to like leave my house even. Daryl shows up to my house. Right. Just puts in a little baggie. I don't know. I don't know how this works. That, but, you, can, you can buy delivery legal now. Too. Oh, there we go. Great. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. So that's one of the challenges in in a, accomplishing probably the primary aim, actually the secondary aim. Right. Like if we think of the three aims of legalizing marijuana or legalizing a drug, number one is don't throw people in jail for things that are unreasonable to throw them in jail for. Right. So like don't find someone who's like smoking a blunt and go like, oh, boy, time to throw you in a prison. Ruining Ru- society. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. Objective number two, gut the black market supply chain, which is extremely violent and uh, generally also not good for society. And then objective three ideally would be revenue. And by putting too much emphasis on objective three, you still largely speaking get objective one, but you miss objective two. So marijuana should hopefully act as a kind of experiment in the at least the decriminalization of other drugs. You know, the the United States and probably many other countries are going to be a little so-so on on having like the heroin dispensary down the down the block. But, you know, we have some other countries where we can also look at experiments in decriminalization of possession, Portugal, things like mm-hmm. that. And the money, the money that otherwise goes towards keeping people in jail, which is actually shockingly expensive, yeah. which kind of blows my mind because it's like it's not like we're giving people HDTVs here. Right. Like they, they live a pretty Spartan life in prison. But, you know, it's shockingly expensive to keep people in prison. Like maybe it's cheaper to just put them through rehab. That's certainly what Portugal is arguing. So is there a, you know, are we seeing a turn in how the United States thinks about dealing with drug problems? You know, and, and I think also as we see an increase in opiate use, in opiate abuse and, and addiction in the United States, which is like the, the number of people that have died from opiates, like pill opiates in the U.S. has increased like tenfold over the past seven years. It's insane. Now that it's it's possible that like with a change in perspective that we've had over the past couple decades, that's also going to be an experiment in how do we deal with this drug differently here? And then can we apply that elsewhere? Obviously, the the cynics will say, well, you know, like opiates are going to be treated differently because it's like middle class white women that are taking them rather than like poor black people. And that, you know, systemic racism and, and all that in the system is is driving this that I, I think that may be a jump to conclusion. I don't know. It's it's these things didn't happen at the same time. A lot of variables changed. But, you know, it you you've probably you've probably been able to tell from how I've been thinking about it that I think throwing people in jail for having drugs in their possession is not the best solution. So I therefore am willing to admit that I am hopeful that how we, you know, the experiments we're doing with legalizing marijuana and thinking about society level treatment and prevention for uh, opiates as opposed to just let's toss all these folks in jail may influence how we how we think about other drugs. I mean, you, you point out, Eric, how shockingly expensive it is to keep people jailed. And yeah, it is shocking. And then but if you think about it, you know, what, what's your biggest cost day to day, assuming that you're, you know, not a multimillionaire, it's housing, right? Housing is really expensive, especially if you're living in a city, it can take up a third of your paycheck. Yeah. 
especially your post, uh, post-tax paycheck. So if you're covering someone's housing and their food and all the other services, yeah, it's going to be expensive. Yeah. If you don't cover that and you just give them treatment, it's going to be less expensive. Right. They get, yes, they get to, they get to go make money and pay taxes rather than just eat taxes. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about the war on drugs and the demand issue. Now let's talk about the drug war and the supply issue and what has played out in Latin American countries between governments and cartels over the last couple of years, last couple of decades. So interestingly, as we mentioned, there has been a major shift in drug supply to the U.S. coming from initially, especially Colombia, where a lot of uh, cocaine, coke plants were grown, and I think marijuana as well. To Mexico. There are still drugs grown in Colombia, but more are grown in Mexico. So Mexico is now not only the source, but the source and the transport corridor. And this was driven in part by a concerted effort between the U.S. and Colombia working together to crack down on a lot of the cartels there, as well as some of the anti-government insurgents. And we talked about this in an earlier episode when we talked about the peace agreement back in, mm. I think, in Jesus, October 2016, we did this episode. God. And, and it hasn't... It hasn't gone completely swimmingly. There have been issues with that peace agreement. I think it's still kind of holding. But a lot of the anti-government rebels ended up turning to drugs in order to generate revenue for themselves. So those two issues became intertwined, even though they initially began to separate. Right. Yeah, it's one of those things that if you're already a target of the government, then what's the in for a penny, in for a pound, right? Like, Ah. like you're not I mean, you're not once you're an insurgent that has like shot, you know, that has like gone after and like shot like, you know, military personnel. Yeah. Like you're you're done yeah right you're donezo so you know you you there's there's nothing stopping you from going well let's also grow some cocaine or some coca and sell it right yeah and let's see so initially in colombia those things were, were grown and transported through mexico there are other transport corridors but that's sort of one of the main ones on land just as an interesting side note in part because of the drug war but not exclusively colombia is, is the u.s's closest ally in south america the South American continent. And that really remains the case today. There's a little bit of questioning politically in Colombia, whether that should be the case, but really Colombia is still kind of the U.S.'s stalwart in South America still. So that raises the question, if demand is high enough, you know, if you kill off supply in one place, like in Colombia, then it's probably just going to pop back up somewhere else. Like you haven't, if that demand to purchase the good is there. The cash is available to whoever is willing to take the risk and sell it. They're still gonna. They're still gonna sell it. It's just gonna be new people selling it, where the entrance costs are maybe a little lower than where they were in Colombia, where you know you had U.S. helicopters flying over and um, spraying all these different fields. Yeah. So it's a whack-a-mole problem, right? Exactly. So the U.S. has spent a lot of time whacking the mole in Colombia, and it's popped back up somewhere else. Not to say that you know trying to end the Colombian civil war and trying to end the, the like practical enslavement of people by the drug cartels into, you know, making coca for them for, you know, pennies and, and with guns pointed at them, like that's probably a good thing, but it's certainly not, you know, if part of the objective is to stop the flow of, you know, deadly drugs into the United States that fund domestic and foreign, you know, gangs, right? Violent gangs. It's stamping it out in one place is probably long-term insufficient. Yeah. I mean, these, these rebel groups are not nice people. You talk about practical enslavement. There's also like literal enslavement. There's, there's the show that I, I got a lot of flack from my Colombian friends from watching because it's just like super over-dramatized. It's called La Nina. And it's, 
it's actually like a dr- dramatized representation of a real story of, you know, these these rebel groups were known for abducting children, seven, eight, nine years old, and training them to be soldiers from that point on. And so this show is about a little girl who's abducted, fought as a child soldier, escaped when she was 16 or so, and went through rehabilitation. And that happened all the time. So, yeah, real terrible stuff that went on down there. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So to get back to Russell's original question, what's been the geopolitical impact? And as we thought about it, it seems that the geopolitical impact of the drug war and, you know, the just both the demand of the United States driving supply from Latin America and also the U.S. and its allies' response to that. I mean, like the, the, lo- you know, the, the domestic response to that in Colombia and Mexico, plus the U.S.'s help, all that stuff has impacted geopolitics substantially. You know, if we think about, like, let's think about how like Colombia and Venezuela have changed. In the 70s and 80s, Colombia was a substantial part of Colombian territory was no go, like no go zone yeah. for the government, right? Like they did not have control over their own territory. And there was a period, this harkening back to one of our pre, you know, our previous episode about the peace deal. There was a period where there was a substantial risk of FARC rebels um, who were funded both by drugs and by Venezuela attacking Bogota, right? Mm-hmm. And, or on mass, right? And, and trying to take the capital. And now that that has changed substantially, Colombia is becoming, more of an economic powerhouse. They're becoming more stable, you know, into the future, like they may be able to project power more. Their neighbor, Venezuela, which used to be the elephant in the room, of course, due to, I'm just gonna be blunt about this one because I I don't think it's controversial, due to mind-bogglingly, mind-bogglingly avoidable mismanagement of the economy has now been reduced to famine. And, you know, and so Colombia is rising from a place that I think it would have been difficult to predict in the 1980s. Yeah, Venezuela is the poster child of why price controls fail to deliver what the people advocating price controls claim that they will. Yes. Yeah. Along with all the other countries that implement price controls. Yeah. 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 So now we're moving north. So what happened? We we whacked the mole in Colombia, and Mexico has taken over drug production, right? Not Mexico as a people, as a society, as a government, but just as a geographic region. Mm-hmm. Turns out that because of all these land routes for drug supply that went through Mexico to get to the US, you know, there was already part of the supply chain there that knew exactly how to get drugs across the border to the US and was making money on it. Their suppliers started to fizzle up. So guess what? Vertical integration, right? 
became the new strategy. And so Mexican drug cartels started growing the stuff locally. And it turns out that when you vertically integrate, uh, if you do it right, you can make even more money and become even more powerful. And also to do that, you have to co-opt even more of the population, both civilian and government personnel, into either working directly with you or allowing you to work. So there was a major push in, what, the 2000s? Yeah, I think it, the real push in Mexico started in 06. Yeah. And since then, from 2007 to 2013, there has been uh, really an incredible amount of, of violent death in Mexico under the surge that began under the Calderon administration in 2006. The idea was these cartels were becoming too powerful. The government needed to take more direct military action against them. And in fact, the military in Mexico is primarily used to fight cartels. And there's really no international state risk in Mexico as there is internal risk. So cartels got a lot more powerful even today, as in Colombia in, in the 80s, there are there there is territory within Mexico that is effectively not controlled by the government. Security is provided by cartels. Mexico does not control all of its territory. Some areas are safer than others, but even Mexico City, there is, you know, we're considered one of the safest places to go in Mexico because clearly that's where, you know, it's a capital. They're going to keep it protected. There is growing risk from local cartels there that are getting more powerful. So if, if you look at the actual numbers in, in terms of like forces being wielded between these these two adversaries, the Mexican government has something like 260,000 soldiers at its disposal. The cartels, and we're saying cartels are several, several cartels, so they're not all working together clearly all the time and usually never. There's over 100,000, um, quote unquote, soldiers controlled by the cartels fighting the government. So it's a real threat to the central government. And just to get a sense of the scale of the violence that's been going on in Mexico since 2007, the number of people that are just simply murdered by drug cartels per year is about three to five times higher than the number of people killed per year in Afghanistan Every, you know, year to year over that same period. Right. So Afghanistan is literally in the middle of, a, a you know, still in the middle of a, a decades long civil war. And just the people murdered by the drug cartels outnumber the people killed in Afghanistan by three to five X. This is massive. And so it's led to the displacement of one point six million Mexicans that had to leave their homes because of this violence. And, you know, and so domestically, the consequences for Mexico are obviously terrible. Geopolitically, what's really interesting is that after a, after a long period in the 2000s, because of the um, Clinton Bush and then Obama administration's border control policy, what had happened was the number of Latin American illegal immigrants in the United States had tapered off, right? So the and, and in fact had started to decrease. So people were going back, and so the like the border was not the U.S. border. The U.S. southern border was not a net influx of uh, Latin American, you know, whatever, undocumented. What like, you know, just just please don't be triggered by the fact that I'm not using your preferred terminology for this. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. Right. Is that people are crossing the border without going through the normal channels, not applying for asylum, not, mm. you know, not getting a visa. So that number of people living in the United States that that were undocumented or illegally here was starting to drop. And then. And then somewhat recently, it has spiked again. Um, and it's because to a large extent, so many people are fleeing the violence and 
you know, violence, destruction, economic depressions, too light a word, to get to the United States where they can be safe, right, and, and raise their families. What makes this doubly complicated is that the Mexican cartels, having grown more powerful, are able to execute more violent and uh, audacious moves on the border to get drugs across the line and move more of their people into the United States in order to control more of the supply chain. This is like, for example, where MS-13 comes from. And so, you know, you have, you you know, if you think about domestically in the United States, how people think about the border, they usually pick one of these narratives and just run with it. They go like, oh, think of all the refugees. And then the other side goes, think of all the really violent people coming across. And what makes this really complicated is it, it's both, right? And it's very hard to tell at any given moment when someone walks across the border like, are they, um, you know, without having applied for asylum or without having gotten a visa or, or any of the normal channels, you know, who are they and why do they want to be here? They can tell you all they want, but it's very hard to know. So it makes, even if everyone had like level heads about this in the U.S., which they super don't, yeah. this would be a really gnarly, complicated policy issue for the United States. And so it makes the United States, because they're, you know, I, I remember I have a friend who worked with the Border Patrol mm. and like. There are stories of getting shot and getting shot and getting shot. And also stories of like using welding torches of like of, of the drug cartels using welding torches and bombs to get through the fence to be able to deliver drugs and people and weapons. This is it's real stuff. Yeah. Now, we need to think about big term numbers and not just stories mm-hmm. in order to have a policy. But, uh, you know, and then I, of course, know people who are are lawyers for doing pro bono work for refugees. Right. Mm. So anyway, complicated situation. And it changes how the United States is thinking about its relationship with Mexico. On the one hand, the United States has as part of the United States is advocated for even more increased border security. But on the other hand, the United States in the last year deployed as as signed off by the Trump administration, deployed, I think, six billion dollars of economic aid to Honduras, El Salvador, uh, and Mexico. So this is clearly not just a Mexican problem, right? although Mexico is the biggest you know, country on the U.S. border, right? But, you know, Eric, you mentioned MS-13. That's an El Salvadorian gang. And they, they've, you know, they got, I think they got started in L.A. It was, it was El Salvadorian uh, immigrants who lived in L.A. And then they set up bases back home after a while. But there are a lot of people fleeing drug-related violence and just poor economic-related violence from Honduras and El Salvador um, as well. As far as Mexico goes, I I think that's where most of the geopolitical consequences lie because it is on the U.S. border, because it it, it is such a populous country. It is the most populous uh, Spanish-speaking country in the world, and it is becoming, I wouldn't say powerhouse, but its economy is growing. It is producing more and more higher-added-valued goods, uh, manufactured value-added goods. And, you know, it's it's a very different place than it was 30 years ago. And yet, because of this drug war-related violence, so many of Mexico's resources remain focused internally. The, the military is, you know, uh, focused almost entirely on dealing with these internal domestic threats. And it really, as far as geopolitics goes, keeps Mexico from projecting any sort of meaningful amount of power outside its own borders because it's all tied down at home. So you end up getting a country with a population of about 123 million, which is slightly less than Russia, 
and a GDP of about $1.9 trillion US, which is slightly more than Russia. Although Russia was more than this a couple of years ago, the ruble yeah. fell. It used to be $2.2 trillion uh, GDP, I think. Yeah. So on, on the global stage, it really is so much of Mexico's foreign policy is just focused on the border with the US. And it's changing a little bit as China, you know, tries to take advantage of whatever, you know, trade tensions exist with the US and US between US and Mexico. But anyways, those are some of the geopolitical consequences of the drug war. And if we if we look really, really far into the future, I actually so long before Xander joined GPF in 2010, I read this book called The Next Hundred Years by George Freeman. Yes. Which I'm I'm not going to say I agree with everything in the book, but he had this very you know, he was looking to he said, like, in 2100, what's going to happen? This very bold prediction that because of the increase in Spanish speaking, you know, ethnically Hispanic Mexico oriented folks in the southern part of the United States, which, by the way, was formerly which formerly a part of Mexico, Mexico, that we've got that it would introduce a border region that has a substantial part of the population yearning to go back to Mexico, yearning to return this this annexed territory to Mexico and that there could be a war between the U.S. and Mexico that it's not entirely clear that the U.S. could win, which I found I was like, and of course, it's still way too far out to to imagine. But the comparisons he drew to other border regions between, say, France and Germany, between like Czech Republic and uh, Germany, between Czech Republic and or maybe Slovakia and Hungary or Romania and Hungary. Anyway, all these border regions, we have these ethnic groups that more identify with ethnic groups on the other side of the border. Right? They tend to be conflict zones. Yeah. And so as that, you know, if that becomes more and more true, if the U.S. doesn't like fully integrate its Hispanic population, then that ethnic, you'll have like this strong ethnic group strongly identified as ethnically different in a nation that is not defined by ethnicity, right? And therefore is kind of like generally kind of clueless about thinking about this, which I find delightful, but maybe a little naive at that point. But that could be, you know, that, that could be a very, 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 very long-term geopolitical consequence, the violence in Latin America that more and more people move to the United States and, and increase the pressure uh, in that Southern region. Revanchist tendencies leading to conflict is not particularly controversial. It happens all the time throughout history. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that concludes yet another listener request. Thank you very much, uh, Russell Waldman. And that's the drug war and the war on drugs. That's that's what we got for today. So thanks for listening in. Remember, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. This is Xander signing off. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.